Welcome to the Book Supplied Podcast, presented by WSL Leadership. In this podcast, we talk about an awesome book and how to apply it to your work, sport, or life. I'm your host, Iggy Perillo. Thanks for joining me. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about the book Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And I'm very excited to have with me special guest Janine Bolin talking with me. Hi, Janine. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Iggy. Uh, I'm excited to be talking about this book with you. Will you give the listeners just a quick summary of who you are and what you do? And yeah, then we'll talk about how we got connected to this book and each other, which will be fun too. That will be fun. I am looking forward to that. So I am a professional broadcaster. I've been in broadcasting since 1982. And so my company is a broadcast company on 47 internet-based platforms, as well as over 64 public radio stations. So I've been involved in that for a while. And that's what makes the money. But on the side, I have this creative urge where I'm also an author, and so I'm working on book number 12, and I am in the process of working with my publisher on book number 13. So always have a book in the wings, so to speak. (laughs) All right, great. Right? Always have a book in the wings. And my goal is always to write a book a year, and that started off in 2015. I set myself that goal, and so far I've totally hit that mark. So Wow, congratulations. That's Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it is. It was because, you know, I had a single mom and I have four kids and I just wanted to show people it was possible when you gave yourself time, Mm. when you gave yourself an opportunity for a year. Now, how does this relate to Brene Brown and why did we pick this book? And that was because I had heard her stuff over and over. I had never watched her TEDx talk. I just kept hearing these words of shame, vulnerability, mm-hmm. disengagement. I kept hearing people talking about this this woman. And so I picked up the book because I always felt I could get to know someone so much better through their written word, being a fellow author. And I'm a nut. I'm a scholar. I <laughs> okay, have been a great. scholar. If I don't have an answer, I dig until I get my answer. And so that also is a part of my personality. And so this book, Daring Greatly, is something that goes along with my family history because our family's motto is I dare. And that's Mm. actually on our family crest and all that. And it's because we were not a blue blood. I don't want anybody to think like we were aristocracy. We were not. We were just courageous. Mm -hmm, And we mm -hmm. crossed enemy lines and we saved a Lord's son's body. And we brought the body back to the Lord so he could (laughs) properly bury him. Hence, we were given a lordship. And so not really the upper crust. And if you look at our family crust, you will see it's not even written in Latin because we didn't know Latin. Oh, great. Classy. Classy. (laughs) We're real classy. So before people think, ooh, no, no, we were just (laughs) kind of the unwashed public. We just were very courageous. So that is what really geared me toward this book. I was like, anybody who starts talking about fearlessness, courageousness, pushing past the fear, clearing your demons, that kind of thing, I'm always interested in because that's basically been my whole family tree. That's awesome. That's such a great story. I didn't realize that was like the backstory that connected you to just the concept of daring and being a daring person or like a history of being a daring family. I thought this was going to go into like piracy for a hot second, but I'm glad you brought it back to like, I guess, like, (laughs) rewarded for bringing a body back, which is weird, a little gross, but like that's a, that was a big deal and it is a big deal. I think to a lot of people, like the repatriation of remains or like bringing the, you know, mm-hmm. proper burial is a huge, a huge um, 
energy. There's a lot of energy around that for a lot of people in a lot of cultures. Well, so. And I like that people ask the question, right? Because when I have my family shield out, you know, on display, they're like, why is there a hanged man on the shield? <laughs> Great. Uh, okay. So just to let you know, it's really graphic and there's okay. this hanged man and, and he's sitting between two stars, but you know, that's just part of it. And then they ask, well, why is there a red cross on the chin piece of the armor of the person and i went oh it's because we also fought in the crusades so oh, yeah. you know, we were all over it so yeah. like you say it was a hot mess you know the yeah. family and the background and everything but our motto was i dare and mm -hmm. so i always had that floating around in my head and i was like well what am i going to do today that I, is daring and it's not based on anyone else's um measuring stick it mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. an internal compass and that has kind of been my pole star that's amazing that's such a great connection to this book which is also a great book and so how i know i read this book probably it came out in 2015 which i was just looking up i'm like yeah i feel like i read this 100 years ago but maybe eight six or eight years ago um i probably read it pretty early when it came out. And I don't even remember how it came to me. I think something similar around the lines of some friend was like, oh, here's this great book. You should read it. And I think I had seen the TED Talk. I had uh, I probably watched a TED Talk on vulnerability first. I'm like, oh, I need I want to know more about this because I, similar to you, like love the research. I'm like, well, this is cool. This talk is really great. Where are the footnotes? Where's the evidence? Where's the, you know, kind of like getting back a little into this is a cool story. And I think I have this sense of like, there's a lot of fluff out there, you know, people are just like, let me just, you know, platitude my way through this amazing, you know, idea. And you're like, yeah, great. Platitudes are fine. Cool, cool, cool. But where's the research? Where's the data? Where's um, the the foundation to this, like the backbone? And Brene Brown is a researcher. Like, this is what she does. She does this beautiful style of qualitative research. And I don't know if it was Daring Greatly or another book where she talks about her research method in the back and how she was trained to do this research method. Is it in there? Well, there you go. Good. I'm glad I have the right book in mind right then. And she really gets into that this is not just like, hey, tell me some stories and I'll just write it up and this is journalism. It's not journalism. It's like foundational sociological research. And she's has her doctorate in sociology and this is what she does. And this is how she gathers data and creates this evidence-based like information for all of us so i think i got connected through the ted talk initially that brought me to this book and it sounds like you have this like like decades whatever centuries of family history millennia of sam family history that brought you to this book but do you remember how you encountered it uh in the modern times like what when when did you come across the book specifically it was because of a reader of mine um mm -hmm. they found out my family shield because i was talking about it on a much like this, a podcast or something. And, and they sent the book to me. It was a gift. And they're oh, like, since beautiful. you, since you have, I dare, you probably should, you know, read this book on daring greatly. And I went, okay, I'll take a look at it and see, see what it's worth. And I immediately fell in love with it because when you go to the back of the book, there are footnotes, there is research. And she also talks about the data. Now, whenever you're dealing with sociology, psychology, that kind of thing, there is a lot, it's, so, it's a soft science. We like to call it soft because you have to have 
a vested interest in it. You cannot disassociate yourself from the results like you can. Like I was trained as an analytical biochemist. Nothing more boring than looking at something <laughs> you can't see. So we studied cells at the molecular level. Ooh, that'll put you to sleep, right? So I just, I like to talk to people about, so the sciences though that deal with human behavior, human, interact, human interaction and how we go about integrating with one another is fascinating, you know? We still love Shakespeare in the English world and not even just the, the Western so-called civilization, but you have it all over the world. Oh, why is that? Well, Shakespeare was brilliant at being able to show you the human condition. To this day, you can watch certain things. And the one I love is Merchant of Venice because it is horrifying to me to see a person's religion so persecuted. Hmm. Right. And so that's one of the things I like. And so when people say we shouldn't do that, we shouldn't show these plays, political correctness, all that kind of stuff. And I, I'm like, no, we need to see where those people were back then. This was considered all right. There was mm -hmm. a justification mm -hmm. for this. And I don't know about you, but I find myself getting very defensive for anyone's particular spiritual background. If you feel you need to pray on a carpet, Five times a day, we're going to make that happen for you because that keeps you calm. That keeps you in a place where you feel secure. I don't know about you, but after 2020, anything that helps calm people <laughs> down and makes it, helps them feel a little bit more secure, I am all for that. So, so that's why I love looking at these plays that are considered inappropriate. Mm -hmm. You have the same thing with, you'll forgive me, Bugs Bunny cartoons. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to find the old Bugs Bunny cartoons because they're not politically correct. Oh, not at all. No chance. <laughs> and they're, But it was a part of our history. It was a part of what was considered socially acceptable. So as a scholar who's always looking for primary source material, you know, I watch how the digital A's is trying to wipe that out. And so, you know, I get a little nervous about that sort of thing because of band book week coming mm. up and all those sorts of things kind of come to the purview. But that's why I'm so grateful we have books like Daring Greatly, because that's a part of our passion. What are you passionate about? And are you going to dare yourself to do something about things that are upsetting to you? I think that's really the neat thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And really, the the theme, one theme for me that obviously comes up throughout this book nonstop is vulnerability. And really, what does it mean to be vulnerable? Why do we throw fit about it and like try to avoid it? And, and also how can we do it better? Like she really kind of hits it from all different angles. And starting with like, yeah, vulnerability is bad. It means you're weak. There's all these, you know, it means you're weak. It means you're going to get taken advantage of. It means people are going to pick on you. It means you're going to lose everything. Oh my gosh, don't be vulnerable. This is like, these are the messages that we get. And in the reality, Brene Brown comes back with like, all those moments when you were being vulnerable were the moments you were being courageous. Those That means to dare greatly is to be vulnerable. And then you just sort of see people's heads explode. They're like, no, wait, that's not right. You know, and she tells lots of great stories about asking people around this. But that idea of vulnerability is engaging with discomfort, like fundamentally, like engaging. We can choose how we engage with things that make us uncomfortable. And that is sort of one of the core pieces of vulnerability. Totally agree. And that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was the fact that she says it's time for us to engage in dis difficult conversations. And because we've been told not to talk about religion, not to talk about politics, not to talk about certain things when we were growing up, it depends on what generation you were and what your family was doing. But at the same time, it 
prevented us from truly understanding how to communicate in a very adult, like I like to call adult fashion. And one of the things I love is that I was watching a couple of eight-year-olds and they were having more of an adult conversation than what you can find on Facebook or, you know, any of our other social media. I was actually watching these two eight-year-olds communicate in a way that our own presidents don't communicate that way when they're on the, the cycle. And it was because they were allowing each other to have their own opinion but they didn't care what the other thought. And I think that was one of the things about cultivating mm -hmm. authenticity. She talks about letting go of what people think. The eight-year-olds didn't care what the other thought, but they did express their opinions. I thought that was interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, she talks about sort of this whole idea around psychological safety in workplaces, which is really bringing back this idea that it's okay to be to have an opinion and to ask questions without being shamed for it and without being picked on for you know, being yourself a little bit. And I think somewhere she gives a quote, like, how often does this happen that someone says, I disagree with you. And here's my opinion, you know, and I disagree with you. And here's what my take on this, like, do those conversations even happen? And she's talking about a little bit about, like, I'm thinking about workplace scenarios, but even with friends, even with family members, uh, but maybe even less sometimes with our friends and family members, because we don't want to upset them. We don't want them to think we're weird. We know them. We're too close. There's sort of, there's a lot of interesting relational dynamics that I think come into play with how we interact with vulnerability and how we, yeah, we have those, like, I love it, like adult conversations, like just, and some would say professional conversations or some would say like appropriate conversations, whatever it is. I love this uh, image you just conjured of two eight-year-olds having like a conversation about something that mattered to both of them, not agreeing probably about it, but sharing their opinions and actually being present for the other person and listening, right? Versus, wait, you said something I don't like, I'm just going to, you know, run away, punch you in the face, you know, gut, whatever it is. You know, like, I think there's like a lot of other responses you could have when someone is telling you something you don't like or expressing an opinion you don't agree with, right? Or just being like, you're dumb. You know, I think that's like a, right. a common response somehow that is okay in a lot of spheres in a weird way. But just to sit there with someone and to be present with them is such a great image. So thanks for bringing that in. It's one of those things that when I witness it as a writer, I'm always cataloging it in the back of my head. And that's one of the jokes, right? You know, if you're going to be a friend with a writer, be careful what you say to them. because It may end up in a book. And it's true. Oh, yeah. You get a lot of your source material from just general life. Uh, one of the things that I think is important as we move forward, especially as we talk about vulnerability, was how Brene talks about cultivating self-compassion and letting go of your perfectionism. I think before we can really integrate with those outside of ourselves and being vulnerable and that sort of thing, there are certain steps we need to take. And she mentions them very clearly in the book of there are certain things you need to take for yourself first before you can then do outreach, which is with other people and being vulnerable and all that. And I thought, the letting go of perfectionism is perfect because I work so much with creatives. I work so much with writers, illustrators, graphic designers, and those people are constantly in my sphere of influence along with podcasters that they have a perfectionism that can be very detrimental to their well-being as well as to their art or to their craft. It'll actually, some people call it self-sabotage. And so that's why I loved her word self-compassion. And that is, I talk about my 70% rule all the time. I get it to 70% and I let it go. And people are like, oh my gosh, really? And I'm like, yeah, because a C is good enough. C <laughs> equals diploma. C yep. equals passing. And yep. I ship it out. And I, I talk to people all the time. I have more content than other people in less time. And it's not a race. It's not me competing against anybody else. It's 
how much content can I crank out, crank out at 70% level and keep moving? And that's why I'm able to be a successful person at what I do, because I'm not perfecting one item. I am running quickly, getting 70% there and handing things off. And then I let other people put the polish on it. And so I just throw that out there because I think perfectionism is quite the disease sometimes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a friend who is such an amazing creative artist and is always tweaking with things and it doesn't nothing, very little gets done unless there's an actual external deadline. Like, oh, this is for a contest or this is for a, you know, to has to be sent in someplace without a deadline. She keeps tweaking and tweaking. It's like, oh, it's not done yet. Like, oh, I can add this. Like, oh, I can do this other thing. And I'm like, oh, you just, just let it go. Just put it out there. And it's beautiful. Like the things she's creating are amazing and interesting and beautiful and intricate and uh, and she would still look back at it and be like, well, you know, I could add this. I could do whatever. I'm like, just stop. Go on to the next thing. It's volume. Create more. Bring more of your gifts to the world versus, you know, so much focus into little things. I don't, I know we've talked about this a little bit before we started recording that, yeah, I don't do a ton of editing anymore. My first podcast, I didn't tell you this though. I, I was like, I need to edit this. This is, I'm, I'm a podcaster now. I need to be really official. And I, uh, edited out basically every time I stopped to take a breath, which is, we know this is like the, what you do wrong when you start. And so if you listen to my first episode, which I recommend you don't recommend because it's a favorite book. It's, um, Mindset by Carol Dweck is the first book I talk about. But I, it sounds like I don't breathe for like 12 straight minutes. I probably record for 20 minutes, cut out every time I took a breath. It's a 12 minute, like one long sentence. It's a little intense to listen to because your brain can't stop to process because you never, I never take a breath on the entire podcast because I edited them out, which is ridiculousness. And then after that, I'm like, oh, well, this is gonna be so hard. If I record for 20 minutes, edit for four hours, and then like produce this. Now, not so much anymore. We're gonna record this. It's gonna get... 10 minutes of like cutting trimming and off it goes. Like it's going to be amazing. And uh, it's so much easier. It's so much lighter. It's so much more fun actually to do. So I'm on board a hundred thousand percent with not being sucked into perfectionism. And it doesn't mean not doing a good job. C's get degrees. Absolutely. Pretty good is pretty good. Like I'm okay with pretty good. And what I find interesting is that I have data on this and I was able to produce with the help of others. I had pre and post production work being done. But because I only worried about 70% and I coached my team in that way, we produced 218 episodes in 18 months. And so, (laughs) yes, you can crank. And we had five different shows. We had one a day that we were producing. And so that is the level of content that goes out there. Mm -hmm. Now, am I super proud of every single episode? Absolutely absolutely not. It's like some of my books. Some of my books, it's like, ooh little light there, right? But at the same time, the book is out there and it's helping people. And that was the whole purpose is how can I get a message out so that I can assist people who are struggling and I want to be able to help them with whatever I have to offer, whatever my message or what my guest's message happens to be. It was also something that Gary Vandercheck talked about. Now, I know a lot of people don't like him and I'm not saying I like him, his stuff is, he's a little too intense. He's a little, but you know, that's what's got him to the level of success that he's at. And he talks about how he had over 300, 400 episodes on YouTube of his wine before anybody ever took notice of him. And it just talked about being a machine of content. And so one of those things that I'd like to share with people is 
when you decide to do something and it's in a creative space of any kind, what is your 70% and go from there? And it's like you said, it's a, it's about letting go. And one of the things that I know that Brene talks a lot about in this book, she talks about three areas that really trip us up as a society. And she talks about shame, comparison, and disengagement. Those were the three. And so I knew you wanted to chat a little bit about shame. And I, that's a big one in my world as well. So I'll let you take oh, it Oh, yeah. I think um, where I see a lot of shame come up is I work with a lot of leaders and coaching them to create positive culture in their workplace. And this is where this uh, emotional psychological safety comes in is a huge piece of that because people feel so afraid to bring their best work forward because they fear they're going to be shamed. They fear that someone is going to like question them and then that they'll feel like they're a bad person because what they brought forward, you know, was questioned, is ridiculed, is teased, is mocked. Like, oh, this is just how we talk here. We're all friendly. We joke with each other. And then someone's like just crying their eyes out in the back, right? Because that is really hurtful. You know, this fun, casual joke, you know, people take seriously that, you know, the someone once said that every joke is like, a, has a grain of truth in it. I'm like, oh, that's so harsh. And like, it is people, like there are these sort of layers of how we take things and how we listen to them. And and we shame ourselves. Like basically we, like Renee talks about, shame is, is our own response saying, I did this thing. Uh, I feel bad about doing something is different than being like, I feel like a bad person for doing this. So shame is, I feel like a bad person because of this versus I did a bad thing, which is guilt. Guilt's great. <laughs> like, this is the other funny part. She like sort of reframed guilt for us as guilt's okay. Like if you made a bad choice, like, yeah, maybe you made a bad choice. It's okay. Make a better choice next time, you know, learn, grow, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a bad person though is such a deep hole to try to dig out of. Like, how do we become a better person? And we put other people in that same hole when we shame them. Like, oh, you're a terrible person. I worked with an organization to change their sort of rules for how they want to operate from don't be a jerk to don't act like a jerk, right? Because if we're calling people jerks all the time, like, how do I not be a jerk? Like, it's just who I am. I don't know, but it's my person. It's like very shaming to call, to say you're being a jerk versus, oh, hey, you're acting like a jerk or here's some jerk behavior we don't want to have happen. Oh, I can choose different behavior. My behavior is within my control, within my scope of influence versus who I am. Like people just throw up their hands and embrace jerkitude at that point because they're like, well, this is me. What, what am I going to do about it? And then culture spirals and it's never good. But yeah, I spent a lot of time in this sort of shame guilt space. How about you? Do you operate in that in terms of what you do in, in your work? Well, I was raised Catholic. So oh, I think the only go. people that, that have the guilt down better than we do are the Judaic brothers and sisters where our religions fond from. So that's, that's what I like to share with people. But the other thing is, is I also help people with debt-free living. And so in 2005, I wrote my very first book, Money, It's Not Just for Rich People. And in there, I took 236 families and I walked them through to see whether or not they could become wealth accumulators in uh, 90 days. And we had a lot of successes. But one of the things that happened is I had on call, I had five marriage counselors that were there because as I was working with these families, they would hit a spot where it would become a marriage, a therapy session on my part. Well, I have no training in that. I'm trying to help you with debt-free living. And so I would contact these marriage therapists and I would say, hey, I've got another couple to refer you. I got another. And they finally let me know, Janine, look what you're doing. You're achieving what we can't do in the office in record time. I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, it usually takes anywhere from three to four sessions before they will start talking to us about their sex life 
they don't talk about money until session eight to 10, Mm, because that's where the shame is. The Mm -hmm. fact that you have them talking to you about money and you're only on the first phone call. This is amazing. How did you do that? How do you establish that level of trust? Mm -hmm. So I just thought, oh, okay, well, I feel pretty better, you know, a lot better now about it, but (laughs) pat yourself on the back. (laughs) But like you said, it's, um, the difference of the framing of how you're saying something, you're not a bad person because you're in debt. It doesn't even matter that you walked yourself there. The thing is, is what is the decision you're making today? And Brene Brown talks a lot about how to to reframe things and to create a mindset. Uh, I love how she talks about mind the gap because I have been to England and, you know, you do have the trains that say mind the gap as you get out. It's so great. But at the same time, it's true. It's like sometimes you have to look down and see where you are. And once you see where you are, then you can move forward to make sure you don't fall into that same hole again that you may have stepped into. Yeah. And she talks about the gap between our um, aspirational values and our values we're living, right? And I actually spent a lot of work on that with folks. Like, yeah, it's great that you have values, but are they the, your real values that you're living or are they aspirational? And it's great to have aspirational ones, but be super clear on which is which. If you are thinking you're aspirational, you know, self is your true self, but it's actually not. And you set yourself up for a lot of uh, rumination, despair, like, you know, kind of internal conflict. If you're like, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a really, uh, I think of myself as a really fair person, but then you're constantly being treating people unfairly, like that discord will tear you up eventually. But yeah, these are uh, great parts. I would love for you to define for me because I have my own definitions, but I love to hear other people's definitions. So define for me what is aspirational versus the other aspect that you were just talking about. Well, I think there's, I call them like authentic values or true values. I don't even have like a great word. Like they're your values, your everyday values. So your everyday values are the things that are like to the level of being habit for you. So your everyday values guide your actions and your your habits are the fossil record of your everyday values. And so you can find those by looking at any habit you have in your life. Like you probably brush your teeth, right? But why do you tell yourself you brush your teeth? You're like, well, I brush my teeth so that my my teeth don't rot out of my head and I can keep chewing food. Or I brush my teeth so my breath doesn't stink for my partner. Or I brush my teeth because, you know, this is something my parents taught me. So I'm like carrying on the tradition of, you know, a clean mouth, whatever it is. Like the story we tell ourselves, why we that to describe our habits is the fossil record of our values, right? The clothes we choose to wear. Like, oh, do I wear this because I want to present myself well? Do I wear this because my grandma gave this to me? Do I wear this because, you know, it is something that someone once told me this color looked good on me? Like whatever it is, like the story I'm telling myself about these very simple choices are my values that I'm living by because I'm actually living by them every day versus aspirational values, which are in no particular order, honesty, integrity, and something that happened to you because of a weird story that when you were a young person, those are your like aspirational values that everyone has. Um, Most often, those are what I hear, honesty, integrity, and this other one because of that thing that happened. And so whatever that thing is for you, right? And that's great. It's great to aspire to be honest. And it's great to aspire to have integrity. But when you get into it with people like, oh, yeah, so honesty matters to you, right? Okay, yeah, honesty matters to me. Great. If that's one of your values, do you tell people when they have some spinach in their teeth? They're like, oh, yeah, I tell them that. Like, well, do you tell them when they ask you, hey, do you like my shirt? And you're like, wow, that's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. Do you say that's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen? And they're like, well, no, I don't need to, you know, 
be a jerk about it or whatever. I'm like, okay, so that's a moment where honesty is optional. Check. Okay, what are other moments of honesty optional in your life? You know, here, you know, basically I can like pry out a couple from people. Oh, do you always follow the speed limit and never go a mile per hour over? Oh, you're being dishonest about that then, aren't you? Like you're not like driving, you know, within the law. Is that dishonest? Is it not? Who cares? You know, basically like Socrates people to death and then they don't want to talk to me anymore. But the, the point is <laughs> that they don't really want to like, they want to be honest. They want to see themselves as honest people, but there are places where honesty isn't like this black and white thing, right? Honesty is, it can be a little gray, can be a little messy and that's okay. But to say I'm an honest person, people think the black and white version, right? They think, yep, true, always correct, wrong, bad, dishonest. So I think those are great aspirational value values because they are absolutes or we see them as often as absolutes and we convey them as absolutes to other people. So aspirational values maybe have some sense of an absolute and worth striving toward. Like, I don't, I think honesty is probably a good thing to strive toward, but to say, I'm always honest, you're not <laughs> like blatantly, right. or to say, I always have integrity, like, cool, maybe, I don't know. I suspect there's areas where your integrity is questionable or you make choices that you don't want people to know about, or, you know, whatever it is, those kind of different things. So that's like a long way of saying, aspirational values, maybe some absolutes, your actual lived everyday values are your actual lived everyday values that you, that guide your actions day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. Thank you for answering that because that's one of the things as an author and a scholar that I'm always asking people is for their definitions because we make assumptions and maybe this is just me, so I'll just say it about me. But there are times where I have made assumptions about the definition that somebody had in their head, and I found out later that their definition and my definition were two different things. And the scientific community, thank goodness, when I turned 21 and decided I wanted to be an analytical biochemist for a living, one of the things that I loved was in the scientific world, they're always asking, so what is your definition for this? Or mm. they have international symposiums on, we are going to call this, this, and we all agree to it. Now, it may take 20 years for us to all to finally agree to that variable or to that um, quadrant, but we eventually get there. And so that's why I love asking people for their definitions. So thank you for clarifying, because for me, it was slightly different, but at the same time, I now have a new perspective. And that is what is valuable to me as an author and a creative. Sure. And I don't know if you've seen Brene Brown's newest book that came out called Atlas of the Heart, but she wrote a book where she defines the different emotions. And so she goes through emotion to emotion based on the research that she does. She's like, here's what people say jealousy is, but here's what people say envy is. And here's what people say. So she goes through to try to come to this point of like, what are the definitions of these emotions? Because being emotionally aware and being vulnerable, like are really closely related. Like we need to, we feel these things. We don't just like think about vulnerability sort of in a cognitive sense. Like we feel it, we feel shame. It's very physical. It's very visceral for a lot of people. And which makes us act in super crazy ways and avoid in some ways. And, you know, just kind of drives us in different interesting ways. But she goes into this really very specific definition of like 84 different emotions. You're like, oh yeah, what does that mean? Like. There's probably a chapter on that in her book, which is great. And not just the negative things, some positive things too, like the difference between joy and the different and happiness. Like they're different. And we sort of like lump them all together. We're like, yeah, I'm I have I feel good, whatever. And she is classically Brene Brown, one of my favorite quotes from her is about her research around how people feel. And they she only got three responses when she surveyed, you know, hundreds of people how they feel. They said happy, sad, or angry. She's like, you do have more emotions than this. It's okay. Like there is more out there, but we I think as a society, much like we avoid vulnerability, we avoid sort of this layer of like engaging with emotion in, in a lot of 
ways because it's, you know, we don't think it's proper or it's not professional or it's not what's expected of us in our role and blah, 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 blah. But I think, I think I see a super close connection between vulnerability and emotional awareness. Definitely. And I wanted to, before we wrap all this up, I wanted to bring out one thing you were talking about, what you liked from her book. This was my quote that I took away where she said, nothing has transformed my life more than realizing that it's a waste of time to evaluate my worthiness by weighing the reaction of the people in the stands. And I think that was something that I totally embraced when I decided I was going to be fearless. And I remember the year that I did that, it was 2009. And I remember standing in front of 300 people and I had to talk about the very taboo subject of their money and their financial situation. And I decided, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. This is my mission. This is my purpose. Right now I'm supposed to do this. And here we go. And I launched into debt-free living and talking about things because the secret hadn't come out yet. And so people thought I was being crazy when I was speaking about the law of attraction and all this stuff that's commonplace now. Trying to define that in 2007 through 2009 before all that stuff started kicking into high gear. And all I can say is thank God for those authors because they made it so much easier for people like myself. And very grateful for Brene Brown for defining these things so that we can go to a book, point to a chapter, and go, this is what I'm talking about. Because if you don't have the words, thank heavens, there's an author out there that has <laughs> beaten their head against a keyboard and does have the words. <laughs> yeah. And that's so great. I love that part too, where she talks about the people, there's people in the arena with you, your friends, your close, your close connections, those people you feel connected to, the people you can, you relate with. And those people matter to you. Their opinions matter to you because they're close to you. But then there's all these people in the stands looking down in the arena, shouting their opinions, shouting their, you know, comments, whatever it is. And those people in the stands just don't matter. Like, it's great. It is really freeing. And I think I agree that that was like a really like powerful point she makes. And it's not just like a flippant, like one liner. She like goes into how this matters, how we're protecting ourselves, how we're vulnerable, how we're connected and who should be in the arena with us a little bit. Like not just everyone gets to like hop in the arena with us and how we define those people outside those people in the stands. And it's okay to not care about what they think. Like, I think like that part is a little bit freeing to some of us who are like, well, we need to care about how people think. We need to care about how we're presenting ourselves. We need to care a little bit. Like you don't like actually some opinions don't matter and that's okay. That's such a, it's very liberating. And one of the things that you and I have both talked about before we got on the show was about personal power. And the more you get rid of the voices in your head about what matters from other people's perspectives, and you decide that you're really going to just focus in on being your fearless self, that fearlessness was what really helped me. And it only took me a year to get to that spot of fearlessness where I was able to do it. Now, I still felt fear. Now, that was the other fun thing. <laughs> you still feel fear, but just like they had that 1980s uh, book that was out, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. I mean, I remember in 1992 running around with that little cassette tape and I would play it in my car, but I remember them talking about feel the fear and do it anyway. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be one of those people that I'm going to do that. And you don't have to do anything ridiculous as far as putting yourself in harm's way. This is that internal battle that has been talked about since, you know, Confucius was talking about that thousands of years ago, about the biggest battle and the hardest battle that any warrior would get through is the internal battle with themselves. So fun stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
Thanks so much for coming to talk with this, about this book with me. It's been very fun, super fascinating. I love, yeah. I mean, I guess any last Brene Brown quote or thought or thing that you want to make sure we have on here? I mean, she covers so many great things. I feel like we've just sort of scratched the surface and kind of danced around vulnerability, connection, the people in the, in the arena with you, the people not in the arena with you, how to be aware and connect with people. And she's like, here's some ways things not to do. Like, I love to actually, as a side note to answer my own question, where she talks about floodlighting. We, if the, I've, I'm sure we've met people who just blah, like dump all of their things on you. And you're like, I don't even know you and I'm getting your life story and this is too much. And I've definitely been like, whoa, this is too much. And people that do that as a way to like force people to away and then to verify it to themselves that they're not worthy of connection, which all comes around to feeling worthy. And at the end, She's like the people that are loved, connected, valued, feel that they're feel that they're worthy of love, connection and being valued. So uh, and that's internal and never external. But for you, any last thoughts, ideas, beautiful parts from the book that you want to make sure we talk about? I think the the biggest thing is if something is scaring you, figure out, number one, is it going to harm me physically if I do this? And be very critical about that. Number two, is it going to harm me emotionally? Is it going to harm me mentally? Is it going to harm me spiritually? And if you answer no to all those, then what are you doing not doing it? Because what you're afraid of is what we call your shadow self, right? The dark side, the shadow self, what have you. And realize the ego's job is to keep creating drama in your own head because then it can feed. And as long as there's pain or trauma and drama, then the ego can sit there and feed. But if you want to live a fearless life, you don't have time for your ego. You're not worried about your ego. You're too busy creating. Are you busy creating your life or you're sitting there in your drama and trauma and spinning because you're letting your ego be fed by your dark side? That is great. Very deep. A little dark, but very deep and true. And it really comes back to you're actually in control of that. Like You can do something about it. You have a point of influence in your whole life because it is, in fact, your life and you are the one living it, feeling worthy, feeling unworthy, feeling shame, feeling guilt instead. Like you have these sort of frames and choices that you make throughout the whole, yeah, throughout your whole existence. So uh, thanks for that. Yeah. Connection to, back to ego. I love it. I love it. And thanks for being here today, Janine. This has been Janine Bolin. We've been talking about Daring Greatly by Brene Brown and a lot of other things <laughs> that are related to that. Uh, thanks so much for coming to talk with me today. And thank you for inviting me. Hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Book Supplied Podcast. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a new book and learning how to apply its ideas to make your work, sport, or life a little bit more awesome. For more leadership education-related content, including conflict management checklists, invitations to a fun-free lunch that happens monthly, upcoming classes, webinars, and mastermind groups, please head over to wslleadership.com. Thanks, and have a great day.